Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning. Open our hearts to the word. Help us to give heed to it and to do it honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Thank you for your prayer for my, my family this week. Uh, some of you may have known uh, that Jen's grandmother died last Monday, and we were able to go down to the funeral this week, and it, uh, it was very sweet. She knew the Lord, and she was a joyful person, and that definitely reflected in the funeral. Um, Jen is still down there with David. She's hoping to drive back tomorrow. Thank you for those who reached out and who prayed for us this week. Uh, we had a good, safe trip, and uh, it was nice to be with family. This morning, uh, planning for the service early in the week, I wanted to focus on, you may have noticed in the hymns, we sung a lot about God our Creator and a lot about death, life and death, especially there in the last hymn. And I wanted to focus on those big truths because those are truths that Ecclesiastes focuses on. There's a a major theme in the book about God who is the creator of all things and the ruler of all things. But also, as you know, if you've read the book, that all men die and life under the sun comes to an end for all people. I trust those hymns were a blessing to you. If you uh, got a bulletin today, I was noticing I didn't actually pick these quotes um, I know pastor often does when he's preaching, or pastor does when he's preaching, and occasionally I will when I'm able to preach, but uh, there are some good thoughts in the, from the pastor there in the inside leaf there of the bulletin, and then on the back, a, a really neat quote from Spurgeon, think on these things. There are some really good things for meditation, even this afternoon as you go home, as you think on the sermon. He may be helped to think on uh, what, what's written there. Uh, I was thinking about it this morning, and... Uh, this bulletin is still relatively new, uh, and sometimes, uh, even though it seems we're used to seeing this and it seems kind of common, sometimes we're still trying to get used to this kind of thing. I'd encourage you uh, to take one every week and uh, look over this from the pastor part and think on these things that are written in there because those are new every week, and often they're connected with the message, and they're often a great blessing to me, uh, and I hope they will be to you. After we read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 together, we're going to consider an overview of the book, Lord willing, in the time that we have. I had been intending to finish Genesis 50 this week, but then I had an opportunity to preach it a week early. So we're embarking on something new. Uh, teens, we may turn to Ecclesiastes after we're done with our current study in Teen Sunday School. I'm still trying to decide. But this will, I trust, serve as a a helpful introduction to the book, and that will of necessity include an extended, a bit of an extended introduction to the message, but I trust some of these uh, introductory considerations will be of interest and of help to us in understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, the message of it, the teachings of it, and then as you go back and read it on your own, I trust uh, you'll have some more uh, help as you do that. 
But let's read uh, the end of the matter of the book. Let's actually back up a few verses to chapter 11, verse 9. The author turns to his audience and he says, Rejoice, young man, during, the, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened. The clouds return after the rain in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who look through windows grow dim and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arise at the sound of a bird and all the daughters, daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors in the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, or this is the whole duty of man, or this is the destiny of every person, it could read. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is evil, excuse me, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless the reading of it to our hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the books of wisdom. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some would consider Song of Solomon as well. If you study the word wisdom, the concept of biblical wisdom, you learn some important truths from the Bible. What you find, you may have even caught a glimpse of it in our reading from Exodus 26. You find people wise in textiles and arts, skillful craftsmen. That word translated skillful is often the same word translated elsewhere as wise. You find people crafty in scheming or in getting revenge, a man like Absalom. 
women skilled in play acting, or there's another wise woman skilled in diplomacy delivering her city as it was about to be overthrown. People who are skilled at charming snakes, they are called wise. Those who have skill in warfare, tactics, winning. The wise men of Tyre who worked as sailors and boat builders. You arrive at this important conclusion, this important definition of wisdom. Biblical wisdom is skill. Skill in living, particularly in the presence of God. And as you study the concept of wisdom, you learn that wisdom comes from God. He's its source. And at the core of it, it really acts by fearing God and living righteously. Wisdom always does the right thing. That's part of its skill, biblical wisdom. But then as you consider the wisdom books, these four books that we mentioned, it may be helpful, it's helpful to me, to consider them in a kind of progression. They all have their own distinct contribution to the overall message of the wisdom books of the Bible. Wisdom literature is a, a per, uh, um, its own literary genre that uh, there are many excellent examples of from the ancient Near East and Babylon and Egypt. Uh, many scholars draw lots, try to draw lots of parallels between the biblical wisdom books and find a lot of commonalities between them and secular wisdom books. There are a lot of formal uh, form correspondences between them. This is a, a distinct literary genre. And if you study the genre, it's uh, one that consists of instructions for successful living uh, that are given or in which the complexities of human existence are explored. And you can see the parallels to the wisdom books of the Bible and how they would have functioned as that kind of literature. And of course, because they're in Scripture, we know that they're authoritative in a way that, you know, literature that you might read in literature class is not. But they bear many resemblances to the forms of the contemporary literature that they were written uh, at the time of. If you think about the book of Proverbs... If you could summarize the message, it teaches what is generally true, what is generally and observably true, the, kind of the black and white of how things tend to work in God's moral universe. You understand this in Proverbs when it talks about uh, the righteous having long life and the wicked having a short life, things like this, how things tend to work. <clears throat> but then Job and Ecclesiastes deal with a lot of exceptions, don't they? And we know when we read Proverbs, we can think of all the exceptions, but Job and Ecclesiastes deal with them. For instance, what happens when the righteous suffers? Job deals with this. He is a case study of that, in fact. Or what happens when the wicked prosper? This is certainly something that Solomon saw in his day, and Ecclesiastes touches on. And many have observed in this kind of collection of the wisdom books that there is a kind of tension between the absolute truth of the Bible and our experience in real life, right? We know what the Bible says, but when we look at it and we see life and it doesn't correspond to what we're reading in the Bible, doesn't it? Our experience, someone said, becomes more credible to us than the truth of God's word. When that's all that we can see are the exceptions. We start to believe that more than we believe what the Bible says, don't we? 
Well, Scripture does deal with various of these tensions, and these are important ones that God wanted dealt with in the Bible. I think it's helpful for us to realize that God put these in next to each other for that reason. It deals with real life. He put them there for our learning, our comfort. And to this topic of these apparent discrepancies between the truth, how things should work, and our experience, what is the ultimate solution of solving these tensions of life? Isn't it faith? We must believe God's word above our experience. And that's part of the reason I want to do this overview of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. So, one author took these three books and broke them down into what he called three essential aspects of existence. Proverbs deals with the demands of practical good management or wise living. Job deals with the enigma of calamities beyond our control or explanation. And Ecclesiastes deals with the disturbing hollowness and brevity of life. Or Oswald Chambers on really all of the poetical books of which the wisdom books are considered a part, said this, summarized it this way, Job teaches us how to suffer. Psalms teaches us how to pray. Proverbs teaches us how to live. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to think about life. And the Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. I think that's a helpful summary of those books. So down to Ecclesiastes, as we consider the message and the purpose of this book, Ecclesiastes lays out for us a biblical philosophy of life. It instructs us in how to think about life on this earth as it really is, not in kind of a dreamy way, but truly facing facts of a fallen world. And its original audience is likely a wealthy one and a a non-Jewish one a foreign audience. We'll touch more on that later, Lord willing. But someone said this, Ecclesiastes provides a blueprint for constructing a biblical philosophy of life that is desperately needed in the church today. If Christians are to avoid being paralyzed by the despair of pessimism or sucked into the mindless pursuit of toys and pleasures. Do you think we need this? Is there a lot of despair in our world as the gods of this world crumble and as the pleasures of this world are found out to be empty? Have you known this? We need this kind of message. Like I said, the original audience was likely someone of wealth, people with access to royalty and to kings. As you read the book, you realize that this isn't an ordinary person. There's a lot of instruction on how to conduct yourself before a king in this book. And it wouldn't make sense if it was just a common person who was the audience. Written to someone with more people, likely with both time and means, to pursue intellectual questions and philosophical difficulties. These aren't common laborers but people who actually have capacity and wealth to pursue the kinds of things that Solomon speaks of. Pleasure, investment, achievement, money, and so on. 
but also I think it's helpful to understand that his audience was likely unbelievers. And this is evident, I believe, in the fact that he never mentions in the whole book the name Yahweh, which is, as you may know, the covenant name of God, the, the name that God identifies himself, the personal name of God, uh, the way he describes himself in relation to his covenant people Israel, Yahweh. The only term for God in this book is Elohim. So this is not just the, the God in relation to Israel, but the God of all mankind, you could say. But also, if you know much about this book, it does seem that Solomon kind of adopts what you could say is a secularist's viewpoint. And many have wrestled with why all of the despair of this book. You notice this phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you knew someone who came to work every day and said that, you'd think they had a problem, right? They were in despair. That's how this book ends. That's actually how this book starts. It's like two bookends at the end of his bookshelf. Life is empty. Life is empty. That's the beginning and the end. And people wonder, is this just a, a cynical man without hope? I don't believe that's the case. Uh, you can speculate about the, the situation of this book. I tend to believe that this is likely Solomon, although he doesn't identify himself by name. He calls himself the preacher. There's good reason to think that this is Solomon. He's the, a wise man, and if we take seriously his claim to wisdom, the wisest man, I think we really have to give credence to the fact that this has long been identified with Solomon. Solomon, near the end of his life, after many moral failings, seems that there may have been a time when he came back to the Lord, giving counsel to those who are coming after him. More on that in a moment. Speaking to unbelievers, adopting their viewpoint as if to say, if this life is all there is, then this is what it is. And in that sense, this book is highly realistic. Some have said brutally realistic at times. Wisdom has no room for dreaminess or denial of reality. It looks at reality square in the face and calls it exactly like it is. I think it's for this reason that it helps us to, it's helpful to take the book as a whole because it's like he takes us on a journey to the brink of despair. But in fact, it's like a, a road with a lot of cul-de-sacs. My grandfather lives in a place where there are a lot of cul-de-sacs and actually my parents now live in a place where if you cross the road one time you can walk all the way around the neighborhood and down all the cul-de-sacs and never have to cross the road and it's kind of a safe walk around the neighborhood because you're not having to contend with cars all the time. But you have to go all down every single cul-de-sac if you're going to make it to the end of the journey, right? If you stop at the end, you're never going to make it to the final destination if you stop at the end of the cul-de-sac. It's as if Solomon is taking on all these detours. Is it this? No, it's not this. Is it this? No, it's not this. Look at this gallery. Not this one either. Keep coming. Stick with me to the end. Or you'll miss the whole point. So finally, before we turn to consideration of the book itself, who is this for? Who is it applicable to? Well, as it lays out a biblical philosophy of life, isn't that certainly necessary for believers? But also, as it had as its original audience, those who likely did not fear God, 
embracing their point of view to demonstrate its emptiness. This is also urgent for unbelievers too, isn't it? And by the key phrase, if you know the book, everything under the sun. I mean, I guess there's reflection off the snow, so we know it's up there somewhere. But who lives under the sun? All of us. What is under the sun? Just life, not eternity. This addresses every single person who lives. Young and old, holy and unholy, naive and wise, humble and proud. Every person here needs to heed the message of this book and wrestle with the issues it raises. Because if you're alive, the point of the book is, this is true for you. So this morning, to summarize the book the best I can, I'll say this. Ecclesiastes highlights the inescapable vanity of life. In order to commend the only wise way of life, in relation to the creator God of life, who alone knows the greatest purpose of life. We'll consider it in three parts. In these three parts. Ecclesiastes highlights the inescapable vanity of life. In order to commend the only wise way of life, in relation to the creator God of life, who alone knows the greatest purpose of life. So first, as we, the title of the message this morning is Consider Life Under the Sun. As we consider life on this earth, the harsh reality about life on this earth is that it's vanity. Vanity of vanities, the book begins. If you turn back to chapter 1, we may turn around a good bit this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the words of the preachers, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Who else would that be but Solomon? It's Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Vanity. What is he talking about? Solomon is speaking about life under the sun, life with no other vantage point but down here right now. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about this life right here. And he's speaking in terms of a purely earthbound perspective. More on that in a moment. But who is he to say so? Why should we take his word for it? Well, the Bible does say that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, doesn't it? And that includes, as we've seen by our understanding of wisdom, biblical wisdom, that he has tremendous powers of knowledge and skill in observation and investigation. He's really intuitive. He's watched a lot of people. He knows human nature. He knows what it's like to be a human. He's lived his whole life, and he's observed, and he's cataloged, and he's written many proverbs. He understands life. He's like a police investigator who searches out all the clues, finds all the evidence, and puts it all together. And then, maybe in concert with a lawyer, builds this case against a criminal. He is a wise observer and investigator. The wisest one to ever live. But if that weren't enough, 
think it's clear from Scripture that Solomon was actually the, kind of the center of this whole wisdom movement in the region in which he lived at the time. If you think of the beginning of Solomon's reign as recorded in 1 Kings, you think about all of his subjects who brought him tribute, all of these kingdoms who were kind of vassal states under him, or the Queen of Sheba who came and searched him out from the ends of the earth to test him with hard questions, and her breath was taken away at his wisdom. Or if you read 1 Kings 10, verses 23 and 24, it says, So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. He's kind of the center of gravity of the whole known world, particularly for his wisdom. Does he have some authority to speak to this? But then by his own admission, we read it in chapter 12, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Not only is he the wisest man to ever live, the wisest man in his day, sought out by many, testified by his peers, he's a reliable author. And what's more, He's an author, in fact, of inspired scripture. Led along by the Holy Ghost to produce written divine revelation. So we must take these words as God's words, reliable, authoritative, trustworthy. Vanity of vanities, he says. What makes life so vain? If you were to read through the book, you'll find that it's full of enigmas, questions that can't get answered. Enjoyment is not satisfying on earth. Achievement is not fulfilling on earth. Work is not lasting on earth. Wealth is not enduring on earth. Wisdom is not rewarding on earth all the time. Justice isn't always ruling on the earth. Good management doesn't always stick around on the earth. Why don't these things last? Why don't they work? Why don't they satisfy? Why are things so broken? These are enigmas, questions that we can't find the answer to. They're puzzling to us, and it seems chaotic and pointless and backwards from how things are supposed to be and how they're supposed to work. And we get this too, don't we? Why did he die so young, so promising? Why did she get that disease when she's been so useful to the Lord? How did that person get into office again? It's a real shame that he ended up inheriting that after all his father's hard work to build it. It doesn't seem to make sense. Life is full of conundrums that defy our explanation according to God's moral universe. And chief among them, isn't it? It's death. We can't figure it out. Death comes to everyone. Death, death is the great leveler of all men. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 says, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. All men die 
And success by any earthly measure is no guarantee of success in life or even of long life to enjoy that success. And the truth is that it is vanity. The word is chebel. Life is full of, someone summarized it this way, frustration over what is profitless and unsatisfying and unjust. It is full of transitory experiences and possessions and it is full of emptiness. That word vanity, some translations translated vanity every single time. Some change the word, but it's all that same Hebrew word. And it describes a lot of different things. Not just emptiness. Sometimes it's temporariness. Sometimes it's something frustrating. But it's vanity. Wealth is ultimately profitless. Making a profit doesn't profit. Work is profitless in this life, is if all there is, is this life. Wealth and pleasure and ease are all unsatisfying. They cannot ultimately satisfy in and of themselves. And this, too, is frustrating. And isn't it? It's, it's frustrating to see injustice in the earth. Solomon is wrestling with this. Wicked men oppressing poor and vulnerable men. And even though Solomon is a wise and just ruler who had great peace in his time, no doubt he knew of corruption in his own kingdom, corruption in other kingdoms, and even if he had the ability to do something about it, maybe it wasn't always the right time, and you see these things being done, and most people don't have the ability to do anything about it. But life isn't just vanity in that it's frustrating. It's vanity in that it's temporary. It's transitory. Wealth, again, is fleeting and short-lived. Success and achievement are confined to this life. They don't reach beyond the grave. And even the reputation that may come with some of those things will soon be forgotten, won't it? You may have noticed the tendency in our own age, our own American culture, to want to be remembered well, kind of to eulogize ourselves while we live, right? Write our own headlines, read our own headlines. Write history. Be on the right side of history. Have you heard these kinds of things? It's really self-centered and fearful and grasping, in my opinion. And with the internet and you know, internet servers and living in the information age like we do, the feeling in the world is as though we have limitless access to the facts of history and that it will always be this way and it's just kind of inevitable progress And we need to get on with progress and make sure we're on the the right side of history. And we need to enshrine ourselves in history while we can so that for generations to come we'll be thought well of. But the truth is, we don't have limitless access to the past. And we don't have control over what will come after us. And we can't even know what will happen to us or what will happen after we're gone. Can't do anything about it. We can't cement ourselves into anyone's mind, let alone in the way that we want. Ecclesiastes 10.14 says, No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Ecclesiastes 2 says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what he has already done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. 
Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, so it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. There is a feverish fear, I believe, that we see in our day. A desperate desire not to be forgotten. A burning ache for significance and impact beyond the grave. A longing for the assurance that my life isn't futile. What I have committed myself to, this idol that I'm worshiping, whatever it is, that it's not worthless. People want this, like the superheroes in our comic books. We want to be legends that transcend time. There is this ache, this longing for transcendence. But we can't. We will be forgotten. We will die. Our influence on the world will end. And our memory will gather dust and soon be forgotten like a snowflake in a storm. The droning message of life under the sun is that this life is passing away and it is empty if this is all there is. And men know this and they fear it. And it's exactly as God has designed it to be under the curse. It cannot be otherwise. No matter how many words we multiply, how many records we write, but not only is life frustrating and temporary, but it's empty, too. There is no pleasure in work if work is the source of our pleasure. There is no satisfaction in wealth or pleasure if these are our gods. There is no ease in the comforts of family or material success or financial well-being or good relationships if these are ends in themselves. They are vanity. They are temporary they are hollow. All of our life testifies this. We cannot deny it. No one can deny it. The harsh reality of life on this earth is that it's vanity, the preacher says. But the best way to live life on this earth is with enjoyment and wisdom. He goes on to say, how do you live life on this earth if everything is this bad? You enjoy it. You enjoy the pleasures that are built into life. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you would. Many people, as I was studying, many despair of trying to find an outline for this book. So as I was studying, I didn't. Uh, try to fool myself and think that I would do much better. There are interspersed comments of deep despair followed by great joy. There are several books that are read in what's called the Megillah, five short books that the people of Israel would read on 
different occasions. So they would read the book of Ruth at, the at a certain festival. They would read the book of Lamentations at the celebration of the destruction of Jerusalem. They would read the, the book of Ecclesiastes at actually a celebration of great joy. They saw this book as a book of great joy, and we would do well to take instruction from that. But this is one of those interspersions of light, one of the rays of light that cuts through the clouds. Verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Enjoy the pleasures that have been designed into life, but enjoy them as from God's hand. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 19. He is the giver of gifts and of enjoyment. It becomes clear. Furthermore, he says, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his re reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. We know that anything good that we ever have had in our lives, that's not from the devil, is it? That's not of our own making. That's from God. The whole scriptures testify to this. But also, God gives power to enjoy those things. Have you ever seen men who are wealthy beyond their wildest imaginations, who cannot enjoy it? God withholds that. God gives them good gifts, but he may not give them the power to enjoy it. This too is vanity, says the preacher, the author of this book. Enjoy these pleasures of life that God has built into them and enjoy them as from his hands, the gifts themselves and the power to enjoy them. And be sure to enjoy them only for what they are, not more. Enjoy them in their proper place. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 8 says, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Enjoy, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Enjoy them. Enjoy them from God's hand, giving him credit, but enjoy them for what they are. They are not God's. They are gifts. gifts for which we will be accountable. So enjoy the life that God has given and then pursue wisdom. As we've surveyed, you've heard different verses where the author does acknowledge that despite the common fate of all men and the fact that sometimes wise people die early and the fate of the wicked falls on them and sometimes wicked people extend their life and the fate of the righteous comes to them, yet it is still better to be wise. It is still better to be righteous. He's convinced of this. Wisdom is better than folly. So forsake foolishness. Forsake evil. Wisdom acknowledges certain facts of life. All people die. They face this. They deal with this. Nothing in life is lasting. Nothing in life is ultimately satisfying. There is an eternity beyond the grave. Wisdom knows this. There is not just life under the sun. There's more to come. If we had more time, we could look at, if you read even, look for what wisdom knows that it cannot know. 
It knows that all, that all men will die, but it does not know what will come after him. And he doesn't try to know what will come after him. The wise man doesn't. He knows that life is full of limitations on wisdom and knowledge, on wealth, on power, on pleasure. Wisdom acknowledges that there are limitations, all these things. And wisdom acknowledges the source of all of these good things. This is why we must pursue wisdom, because wisdom brings us into relationship with God so that we may fear him. The best way to live life on the earth is with enjoyment and with wisdom. So pursue wisdom. Enjoy the life that God has given you as a gift from him. Acknowledge your creator in the days of your youth. Don't shun him. Don't refuse to thank him. What does Romans 1 say? They did all these things. They refused to acknowledge God. Neither were thankful. But then, as if we needed it, I believe there is proof that this is not a humanistic book. In this short book, 12 chapters, Solomon mentions God some 40 times throughout the book. The harsh reality is that this life is vain if this is all there is. The best way to live life on this earth is with enjoyment and wisdom as God has enabled us to do. But then finally, the one relationship that makes sense of life on this earth is the fear of God. If you're looking to get your questions answered, you won't get all of them answered, but you can know the one who knows it. This is the only relationship that makes sense of all of these enigmas about life. And it's a right relationship with God, a relationship in the fear of God. And if you were to study kind of big themes and categorize what you learn about God in this book, you would learn that God is the powerful creator. If you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we know these verses well. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Have you heard this? A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. And he goes on. Look down at verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Why is there a time for everything? Because God made it that way. God created life to be this way. He pre-programmed times and seasons into phases of life in a way that we can neither anticipate nor undo. He is the powerful creator. He created man, if you turn over to chapter 7, verse 29. And he made him good and innocent, yet man chose sin. Look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. He created man, and he created him good. And he is the designer of anything we hope to do or to use or to achieve or to enjoy. And the point is that we must know him 
if we will understand his work. Those who deny the creator and refuse to believe in him are rejecting the source of all knowledge of the world in which they live. And so they become fools. If, if you want to talk about evolution or atheism or whatever, these men who have rejected God, men and women, they may occasionally get some things right, but when they reject the source of truth, it's like they're on the wrong runway. They're never going to end up at the right destination. They may accidentally cr cross the right flight path at one point by God's common grace. But when they've rejected him, they are fools from the beginning. And if I may make a, a point of application, in the world's eyes, Christians are often fools, aren't they, for living by faith. But this is why Christians need to invest themselves in serious study of the world that God has created. Because as those who fear the Lord as the beginning of knowledge, and they know the source of all true knowledge, don't you think that they would be the ones who would be able to investigate most accurately and understand the world that God has created? rather than starting from the beginning, denying that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They deny this, and then they think that they have the corner on the truth. They don't. They don't. They can't know. Except God, by common grace, give them a ray of light. But because we have the word of truth, and we know the God of truth, we can know with certainty, and we should know. Because God has given us this wonderful capacity to understand and to study the world that he has created and learn about our creator and praise him. We must know our creator if we will understand his creation. And the fact that an atheist doesn't believe that God exists or an evolution, evolutionist doesn't believe that God created him doesn't change the fact that they are created by God. They can't just deny it away. It's true. And it doesn't change the fact that they're living on his earth, enjoying his workmanship, sustained by his mighty hand that gives them every breath that they breathe and every thought that they think in opposition to him, every bite that they eat. It doesn't change the facts, no matter how hard they try to deny it. So they're just living in a dream world. And at the same time, they're a stench to the one who has created them and who is sustaining them because they are not thankful. They will not humble themselves despite all the good things that he does to them. And isn't this what we all were? Do you see the crime of refusing to believe in God? How good he is to us? We were enemies, weren't we? When you think about it in these terms, you, you get a, another glimpse of what it means to be dead in your trespasses and sins. Slaves to the, to the flesh, the world, and the devil. Opposed to God. Would you name yourself among those who put Christ on the cross? That's what we all were before God reached down in mercy and opened our eyes to the truth. We were that opposed to him, that deserving of his judgment. 
And the instruction to this evidently powerful and wealthy young man from another country is this. You must remember your creator. Acknowledge him, worship him, serve him all your days from now until you die. Do you think that's a message that we need to hear, that we need to proclaim? He made you. He owns you. You're accountable to him. And you won't find anything good apart from him. God is the powerful creator, but he's also the absolute sovereign. I think one thing that really brings this whole book together is to realize a connection. If you would turn over to Romans chapter 8. Some have called the book of Romans the crown jewels of the Bible. And Romans 8 the diamond right at the top of that crown. I want you to notice a key word here in in verse 20. See if you can lay eyes on which word you might think might be connected to Ecclesiastes. Romans 8, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That word there in verse 20, futility, creation was subjected to futility. That Greek word, is the same Greek word that the translators of the Septuagint, the, the Septuagint, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament that existed, uh, was translated even before Jesus was born. They use this same Greek word for vanity in Ecclesiastes. Futility of futilities. All is futility. That Greek word right there. And many have pointed to this verse and pointed out, creation is subject to corruption and futility. We know that we live on a fallen world, right? Genesis 3, God made everything very good. The serpent tempts Eve. She eats in disobedience to God. Mankind is plunged into sin, the fall, right? Creation, fall, redemption. We think about this over all of Scripture. But sometimes maybe we don't distinguish in our minds what came after the fall when God came and talked to Adam and Eve about their sin was the curse, right? And who pronounced the curse? Was it the devil? Was it Adam? Was it Eve? Was it the serpent? God pronounced the curse. God subjected all of this to the curse. He cursed the serpent He gave the woman pain in childbirth. He cursed the ground because of Adam so that his work would be laborious and so that he would go to his grave in sorrow, dust to dust. God subjected creation to futility. What he created, he rules with absolute sovereignty exactly as he pleases and he is accountable to no man. And his work stands forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14 And he has set eternity in our hearts and limits what we can know. 
so that a man cannot know what will come after him, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. God is the absolute sovereign. He is the wise disposer of all things he gives and he withholds. And as we read at the end of the book, he is the infallible judge. Everything is empty, meaningless. Follow your heart, follow the impulses of your heart all the days of your life, yet know that God will bring every act into judgment. And about this verse, someone said, nothing is meaningless. Solomon said, it's vanity. But here we learn nothing is meaningless, for God assesses it. And no one is forgotten, however short may be the human memory. The truth above the sun is that God sees everything under the sun. And he will judge with all the wise powers of investigation that Solomon had. He couldn't see everything. But if God is the source of wisdom, don't you think he has infinitely greater powers of observation and investigation into the thoughts and actions of the lives and minds of every single person who has ever lived? Of course he can. Of course he does. He is infallible. He will bring every work into judgment. I'd like to close with a few words of application. First, to unbelievers, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you can try to discover all this on your own if you want. Solomon spent his whole life trying to figure this out, and he came to the end of his life having learned a lot of hard lessons. But I would warn you, If you try to do this on your own and try to figure out the meaning of life and refuse to come to Christ until you do, you've got a couple problems as an investigator because you're a deaf and blind investigator. You have no spiritual perception. You cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned, the Bible says. And only God can reveal them. And the other problem you have is that you will die too. And your life is wasting away on you while you try to figure it out. You will meet death. We all will. So will you spend your life on yourself? Or will you spend it doing the thing for which you were created? The conclusion when all has been heard after all of this investigation, this whole journey through the whole neighborhood, every single cul-de-sac, every blade of grass that he's observed, every neighbor that he's seen, every experience he's tried. What's the conclusion? Will you heed it or will you reject it? Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Whether you acknowledge God or not, God has made life to work only one way. He has subjected the creation to futility, and you cannot undo what he has done. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, who can make straight 
what God has made crooked. No man, no man, only God. And as I heard someone say, life is supposed to taste like cardboard if you insist on eating the box. But there is abundant life, abundant life, not just the box, but the whole package. In Jesus Christ, it's available through him. You must turn from your sin by God's grace, and you must turn to the Savior. I sing my Savior God to thee. That one substitute, that one sacrifice for sin. Will you do that today if you're you're not in Christ? But to believers, two words of application. Number one, don't grasp after the vanity of temporal things like the world does. They grasp after these things because that's all they have. What was Job's perspective? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. That is the right perspective on the stuff of life. We will leave it all behind won't do us any good once we die. We have no control over what God has planned for our lives, and you also can't know ahead of time what he has planned for your life either. And it's easy to become consumed with not knowing and trying to figure it out. That's often what leads us to worry, isn't it? But that's not our role. God hasn't given us that information on purpose. Instead, he wants us to fear him and to trust him and to obey him and to enjoy him and to enjoy his gifts for as long as he gives us breath. Don't we have a good God? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. His ways are past finding out. His plans endure forever. And we need to worship him. We need to humble ourselves before him. So don't grasp after things that won't last. But also, don't be disconcerted that you can't solve all the enigmas of life. Instead, trust the one who made it that way and who knows why things are the way that they are. There are limitations to your knowledge, your ability to investigate and to understand. God has made sure of that. He's created you that way. And that's exactly where faith has to operate, to trust God about things that appear broken or wrong or unsolvable right now. And if we don't trust him about this, to, to do otherwise is to be, to be proud and to be self-dependent in our understanding. Instead, I believe a major message, a major application of the book of Ecclesiastes that's so dark and gloomy sometimes. It's important for us to understand from this book that God intends us instead to hope in the promise that he will make all things new. We referred to Adam's sin and the fall and the need for redemption and how God pronounced the curse. But why did God pronounce the curse? Creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Christians have hope of being freed from this corruption, this decay, 
this emptiness, this frustration, this pain. And the creation does too. God will make all things new, including you and me and all of his creation. Very good, just like at the beginning. But that is not yet. If that's hope, Romans 8 says, that means it's not here yet. We can't see it yet. Is it your hope? Or is your only hope under the sun? If it is, the book of Ecclesiastes sure demonstrates that that's not very much hope. But there is great hope in the truth that the one who pronounced the curse will one day finally reverse the curse. This is the hope of redemption, the glory of the gospel. Rather than fretting right now to figure out every unanswerable question of life, trust God who is the ruler of all life. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty. This is the destiny, the created purpose of every person. So Ecclesiastes highlights the inescapable vanity of life. You can't get away from it. In order to commend the only wise way of life, in, order, in relation to the creator God of life, who alone knows the greatest purpose of life. This is a message to every man. Will you heed it in the fear of God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the powerful creator, the infallible judge, the absolute sovereign, wise in every way. You have placed many limits on us so that we would turn to you. May we humble ourselves and hope in you. And now that we know about our Savior, Jesus Christ, because of your work in history passed down through your precious word, may we hope in him, our great Redeemer who lives. I pray if there are any here who have not yet turned from their sin and turned to him, that they would do that today, that they would not waste their lives on themselves, but remember their creator in the days of their youth. Because, Lord, there is only emptiness apart from you. Help us to be satisfied in you. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.